Friends, before we begin, let me invite you to keep up with all the Tracks for the Journey resources by subscribing to the Tracks Express newsletter. Once a week, I send a wide range of helps for well-being directly to your inbox. The Express has inspiration and insights for spirituality, relationships, ecology, emotional health, and yes, recipes for good food. The easiest way to subscribe is on my website, www.tracksforthejourney.com. Thanks for listening today. I wanted to hide my red-faced embarrassment by crawling under the bleachers. My dad had taken me and a couple of my sixth-grade friends to a college football game. During halftime, the flag girls and band marched proudly. A line of the marching ladies, clad in white cowgirl costumes, danced across the field in front of us, led by a pretty and quite buxom lass. My dad had never talked with me about sex or dating, but he turned to me at that moment and said, That girl is really pointing the way. Of course, I had noticed the same aspect of her figure, but was instantly mortified that he had said something about sexuality, blowing my 12-year-old mind into speechless embarrassment. In this episode of Tracks for the Journey, I'm following in my dad's steps a little bit. Let's talk about sexuality but with a little more wisdom and finesse than that long-ago Saturday night at the football game. Sexuality is okay with God, and it can be with us, too. The first thing we should say about sexuality is that it's been around a long time. About 1.8 billion years ago, Little cells called eukaryotes evolved with something never before seen, male and female. Baby eukaryotes got DNA from two parents, laying the groundwork for every creature since that time. Since Christians believe God is the creative force and designer of the universe, it seems God is okay with sex and has been for almost two billion years. A little closer to home, Humans like us have been doing it for 200,000 years or so. We should have this down pat by now, right? Well, maybe we need a little bit more work. And so I hope this session today will be helpful for you. We can start by making sure we have the right vocabulary. Modern science has expanded our understanding of sexuality. Let's do a brief overview of four ideas. Sex, gender, identity, and orientation. In modern terms, sex refers to the physical parts we know so well, distinguishing male and female. In 99% of babies, the difference is quite clear. The 1% are known as intersex, where physical features follow one sex, but the genetics are the opposite, sometimes bringing real adjustment difficulties as life goes on. Moving beyond the physical, the idea of gender involves the attitudes and behaviors of the culture about male and female. For example, 100 years ago, the color pink was associated with boys in Western culture and did not shift to being a color for girls until the 1940s. 
Now many parents encourage less restrictive role models and patterns and colors of clothing. Ideas of gender vary widely across the world, and they have varied in our society in just these last decades. Let's take a third step. The idea of gender identity means how much each person relates to these cultural norms. For most people, identity aligns with both sex organs and culture and, be, and can be called cisgendered. Cis, that is C-I-S, is the Latin word for on this side. So cisgendered means that a person has male sex organs, feels male in their mind as they relate to the culture. The opposite is transgendered, where a person's perception of identity is not aligned with the sex organs and cultural expectations. This would be where a woman with female organs relates not well to the cultural expectations of being a female and feels totally out of place with that identity of gender. A third self-perception, where a person doesn't follow strict male or female norms, goes by the term non-binary or bigender. Like personal attitudes, identity emerges from genetics, family, and self-understanding. Diversity seems baked into the human experience. Gender identity can be cisgendered, transgendered, or binary. To the three elements of sex, gender, and identity, we add a fourth, and that is orientation. Sexual orientation is the romantic emotional connection one has with another person as well as their pattern of personal identity. Heterosexuals are attracted to the opposite sex, homosexuals to the same sex, and bisexuals to both sexes. Here is an important point. Modern science is nearly unanimous that orientation is not really a choice, but an innate and basic neurological response that can be expressed by many types of behavior. Orientation emerges with puberty as an emotional experience, not a rational choice. Listeners who are heterosexual might find this especially difficult as they think of being drawn to a same-sex partner. But there's a way to understand what science is saying by asking our heterosexual selves, when did I decide to be straight? Well, the answer is, of course, there wasn't a decision to be made. It was just the way that I felt. And the same is true for LGBTIA persons. It's not a choice, really, but an urge that comes without logic or calculation from the very earliest time that there's an awareness of these romantic emotional feelings. What we consider rational is the way orientation is expressed in daily choices. So we have these four factors that make human sexuality really complicated and variable. And I think a corollary would be the recognition that sexuality has no single perfect way of expression for all people. 
it seems indisputable that billions of humans, past and present, have successfully lived out sexuality in a myriad of ways. This diversity must inform our discussion and patterns today. When I visited Florence, Italy, I spent several minutes admiring Michelangelo's huge statue of David. I'm sure you can get a picture of it in your mind. The muscled, nude body of the young man, cast in marble 17 feet tall, tensed to battle Goliath in that great conflict, is universally proclaimed as a masterpiece. The artist captured every detail, including the male parts, which are quite prominently displayed. Visitors from all over the world look, ponder, and sometimes giggle in embarrassment. Jan and I had a big laugh when I had her take a picture of me standing several feet away from the figure, holding my hat to hide the explicit manliness that was so visible. Interestingly, a replica in London's Victorian Albert Museum has a plastic fig leaf hung near the statue. It can be attached with two small hooks to the statue to minimize the sexuality that is rumored to have shocked Queen Victoria in the 19th century. How times have changed and how diverse is our understanding of what we call human sexuality. Thank you for sharing this episode about human sexuality. One source of guidance about this subject is the Bible. Some argue that there is only one biblical way to live as a man or woman or family, which some describe with the quote, one man, one woman for life. When we read the Bible in its context, however, it's not quite that simple. In the Hebrew Testament, polygamy was common and accepted, especially among the wealthy. Solomon was said to have a thousand wives and concubines, and King David is listed with several wives, as are several other male characters. In the post-exilic years, it was still practiced, though rabbis taught a man shouldn't have more than four wives. We can also note that the culture of Bible times was patriarchal, considering women as the property of the husband. Yet, when we turn to the ministry of Jesus, we find him accepting women as equal among his disciples, which I believe laid the foundation for women's rights to become law long centuries later. There were numerous laws scattered throughout the scriptures to regulate sexual activity for men, and in even different ones for women, a classic double standard. Divorce was easy for a man and nearly impossible for a woman during the time of Jesus. Violators of the infidelity commands in the time of Jesus were to be stoned. Yet there was one time where he, he intervened to prevent that from happening and directed attention to the sins of the men who were standing around. So when we consider all these diverse voices in the scripture and the infinite complexity of sexuality across the planet, we should consider that varieties of sexual expression may be a part of God's plan, not a descent into the curse of a fallen race. With these variations in mind, it is good to remember a basic principle of Bible interpretation, that the Bible is a book of wisdom, not codified regulations of absolute laws.
The same biblical passages that seem to condemn some sexual practices also condemn eating shellfish, wearing underwear of mixed fabrics, gluttony, or men having long hair. Rather than strict laws inappropriate to apply in modern times, we must look deeper for the principles and examples to be applied in each successive age in different situations. The patriarchal, misogynistic, and racist culture of the ancient Near Eastern world should bring us caution when we apply these Bible passages today. That society cannot be considered as sacred, and it's not worthy of being replicated today, period. The ethical principles of Jesus, joined with science and the creativity of the Spirit in the community of faith, are what we need for today. Some of you are like me and enjoy having a book to read as well as things to listen to. So I invite you to go to Amazon.com and search for Tracks for the Journey 2021 under my name. There you'll find a link to a paperback or Kindle version of all the episodes that were aired in 2021. There are actually 22 chapters that cover everything from sleep to depression to God's mercy to grief to Christian nationalism, and the list goes on and on. I think they're challenging topics for our time, and I believe you'll benefit by having these in front of you, either on Kindle or in paper. So today, make your decision to follow these episodes, Tracks for the Journey 2021. I hope you'll enjoy it. The issue of homosexuality is a case in point about the biblical models of sexuality, interpretation, and modern culture. While traditional interpretations have found passages of the Bible that condemn same-sex relations, modern scholars have questioned those simple viewpoints. Professor Perry Key summarizes this well as he presents one example found in the New Testament. The Greek word in 1 Corinthians 6, translated in the New International Version as, quote, men who have sex with men, end quote, really has roots in Greco-Roman sexual practices. Considering the usage of that word in other writings of the same era, it's best to be understood as condemning pederasty, which is a man having sex with an underage boy. This abusive and coercive crime of power is much different than the consensual committed gay relationships so common today. The biblical passage is about child abuse, not LGBT relationships. It seems to me that for our modern era, we should focus on the emotional quality of a consensual relationship, not how sex is expressed between the partners. America has many examples which demonstrate LBGT persons can embody the qualities of biblical love just as well as straight couples. One example is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He and his partner Chastine have been together for years. A dedicated Christian, Pete has been vocal about his devotion to God. 
He's a decorated veteran, graduate of Harvard and Oxford, speaks seven languages, and has performed with symphony orchestras. He's doing a great job as transportation secretary under President Biden. He and Chastine recently adopted twins to join their family. When we peel away the layers and look between the surface, LBGT persons can embody the qualities of love just as well as any couple. In a spirit of transparency, I gladly acknowledge that my opinions have changed over time. In 1992, I preached on this topic to my congregation in Amarillo, Texas. I offered traditional interpretations of a biblical passage that said homosexuality was not acceptable to God. It was a choice that should not be made. As I've shared today, my opinions have followed science and further study to change over these 30 years. I've grown to see sexual orientation with more scientific and biblical understandings, not as a choice so much as a biological determination, not to be condemned as immoral. In that message long ago, I did say, however, that the church should love and accept those who live this way, and the government should grant full legal status and protection. Those ideas were not mainstream in 1992, and they earned me some very harsh feedback. Of course, today the legal landscape has changed for the rights of LGBTIA persons. So is public opinion, with 79% of all Americans favoring laws that protect this group from discrimination. I find it tragic and unchristian that many churches still condemn and shun LBGTIA persons. The same can be said for the culture war to block gender-affirming care, a medical treatment for use for more than 50 years for transgendered persons. Texas is leading the way in this horrific effort to stigmatize children and youth already victimized by peers for their gender dysphoria. This is the ultimate government interference in personal freedom to control one's body, as well as robbing parents of the right and responsibility to guide their child and to enforce government stereotypes by legal fiat. Maybe this podcast will open new ways of understanding as we re-examine what science, psychology, and theology mean for today's ethical practices. As we wind up our thoughts today about sexuality being okay with God, it's obvious that God thinks sexuality is just that for a million species and for human beings. What are some of the abiding principles of Christian theology and modern psychology that we can lean on today for our practice of sexuality? Beyond simple procreation, which is pretty important for our species, is the foundational goodness of sex. God pronounced male and female as good. It was an arrangement that he planned and likes. This foundation extends to all aspects of our sexuality, all of the four parts that we talked about before. Our biological sex, our gender, 
our identity, and our orientation are included in this rich treasure of human experience. In Scripture, we actually find the bodily pleasures of sex being celebrated. Though the imagery of the Song of Solomon is kind of weird, saying that a woman's hair is like a flock of goats, <laughs> we know exactly what is meant when the words are shared, quote, Love burns like a mighty fire, and many waters cannot quench love, end quote. Sex is a vital part of two people becoming like one, enriching the lives of both with love. Now, just as clear as the goodness of sex is the importance of fidelity. The negative seventh commandment of not committing adultery is designed to promote the ideal of exclusive commitment. Sex is too important to our identity to be shared outside of a committed relationship. Promiscuous sex, pornography, and polyamorous arrangements demean the unique personhood of all involved and impoverish the depth of connection that promotes our well-being. As we turn the pages of Scripture, we find fidelity is set in the larger biblical theme of a covenant between two partners. As ethicist David Gushy writes, It is important that sex, with its deep personal longings, takes place in a context of faithfulness, forgiveness, mutually respectful justice, and enduring loyalty, and not in a context of rivalry, fear of not being accepted, manipulation for self-satisfaction, and eventual abandonment. Gushi has a great point in his book. In this era of confused and often hurtful sexuality, these are words of wisdom about being trustworthy in love. In my professional experience, an affair often shatters the trust and love of a relationship. I remember counseling a woman, I'll call her Ingrid, who was not the perfect wife by her own admission, but the discovery on her husband's phone of texts and nude pictures of a younger woman blew apart her world. She had trusted him for 20 years, and now his lies cracked the foundation of it all. It started years of emotional suffering, loneliness for her, and radical adjustments for the children and the entire family. It was a vivid reminder that faithfulness to a partner is central for a healthy sexual life. So in conclusion of our episode today about God being okay with sexuality, I think we can do a much better job to build a sexually healthy society than we're doing right now. The way forward is neither a sexual free-for-all nor a neo-Puritanism of repressed urges. I propose we embrace the goodness of sex, informed by science, managed with fidelity, and directed by love for one another. I think together we can improve our well-being and our society for everyone. listening today to this episode of Tracks for the Journey. You can connect with more helps for your well-being on my website, tracksforthejourney.com, or I invite you to email me directly at trackspodcast at mail.com. 
Now on that website, you can read the blog or order books or connect to all the different episodes of the podcast. And there's a link to a full transcript of every episode that's available through the website. I invite you to follow the Facebook page, Tracks for the Journey. And you can always connect with me for let's have a discussion about your well-being. Tracks for the Journey is produced at the Bright Star Studio and all rights are reserved. Hosting is by buzzsprout.com and music is from pixabay.com. I hope you'll have a great day today and make some progress on your journey to well-being. Mm-hmm.